Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are diving back into music and the liturgy, and we're talking about which parts of the Mass the Church tells us should be sung first and foremost. So without further ado, episode 30 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. But, you know, whenever I teach on this topic of music and you actually read what the documents say, people often say, why do we do this exactly backwards? It seems like the things the church asks us to concentrate on we don't do, and the things that we do are often the ones that are the, the least important, in, at least in the way the church teaches what we're supposed to do. Kind of a paraphrase of St. Paul there, isn't it? <laughs> the good <laughs> which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I... So you're saying liturgical music uh, is inextricably bound yeah. up with the fall? Well... <laughs> It <laughs> could be. Well, like everything else, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. But, but you're right. That it's in liturgical music that there seems to be the greatest uh, discrepancy between actual practice and what the documents truly say. Yeah. It's, almost, uh, it's most audibly on display uh, with uh, liturgical music. But it doesn't surprise me. That's how it was the whole 20th century. When you read all the documents from Charles and Lichitudini, Jesse, that's your cue to say, God bless you. And, God bless you. Yeah. All the way up to, I caught him drinking coffee in that moment. All the way up to today. <laughs> You remember we had to edit all those slurps out. Why yeah. are you putting those <laughs> slurps back in? Are we starting or not? Yes, we started. Well, you got to let me know when we're starting. We're start- we've started. All right. And are we, we started talking- with or without you. Are we talking about... Try, try to keep up. Okay. Try to keep up. Right, sure. Just let me know when I need to chime in, all right? I mean, 1903, Pius X is complaining about the crummy music. We don't sing the right things. It's theatrical. It's not. doesn't have goodness of form. It doesn't have holiness. It's not universal. And, and these are the same complaints yeah. people are making today. Well, and then the people aren't participating in the, in the music either. They may be singing some things, if anything, but they're not singing the liturgical texts, right? And so uh, this was a great, uh, you know, and even on that same point, you know, active participation, he introduced it to, on behalf of the magisterium in the context of the people participating in the liturgical music of the Mass. So this was a big topic for a great deal of the 20th century. And it forces us to ask the question that I always go back to ontology, what is the nature of liturgical music? It's not singing emotion-based hymns at mass because you're bored, or we've got to do something while the guy walks from there to there, so we'll give people a song to sing. It's actually entry into the liturgical action, the liturgical text in the words of the Missal uh, itself, and the body and the head and members talking to each other, and then together talking to the Father, that's a whole lot different than sing my favorite song from the St. Louis Jesuits. This is true. What, we, is, what we, is your favorite song from the St. Louis Jesuits? Let's not go there. I'm not sure. This is I'm a family. Oh. It's a family. <laughs> what? what? No, to, to, the, to the ontology of liturgical music yes. um, or eschatology of the liturgical music. I mean, yes. what is it? You, you mentioned there it's, it's head talking to uh, the body or it's um, even... We've tried to place this even more uh, squarely in the Trinity itself. That that the Trinity itself is this, uh, this this eternal love song, and Cardinal Ratzinger will suggest these things. That you know what singing is this combination of words and breath, and what is the Trinity but uh, the most perfect, true, substantial, meaningful, beautiful word ever 
combining with the, the Ruah, the breath of the Holy Spirit in this beautiful song of love, which is the Trinity. So the Trinity, you might say, is this uh, is itself uh, a song, a music of praise and love and devotion to God the Father. And then um, there's a real beautiful line in Sacrosanctum Concilium that in the Incarnation, uh, the Eternal Word introduced this song, which is sung throughout all the ages in the halls of heaven, to earth. So now that we get to participate in this Trinitarian love song. Um, and, uh, you know, this takes place within the church where we have Christ the head uh, and his members, the body, are kind of sacramentalized by the priest and the ministers, or especially the priest, uh, in persona Christi Capitis, and the body uh, singing back and forth. This, so this is kind of the, the in, in this dialogue, this is the ontology, this is the undergirding theology between, you know, behind the norms of uh, the church on liturgical music and so we'll see when we start to peek at the what the church actually says about what should be sung the first thing always to be sung is dialogues because the trinity is a dialogue of love the uh, church is this dialogue between bride and bridegroom and we uh, sacramentalize that in the things that we sing so we don't sing monologues so him is basically a monologue right we are all saying the same things <laughs> to somebody but what what, yeah. what what are the dialogues at, at mass though yeah. People know what that is. The dialogues are really, uh, so a dialogos is a, is a word that's going back and forth between two persons. Diabolical. So this is kind of a trialogue, I guess. Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> I love when you crack out etymology. <laughs> I love it, trialogue. Uh, but you're right, the monologue is just me talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. But the dialogue is I talk, you listen, you respond, I listen, and there's a word that passes uh, in between us. So practically speaking, that would start right at the beginning of Mass, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people respond. That would be the first dialogue, right? Amen. So Yeah, so the, it would, the priest would say the sign of the cross, the people would respond, Amen. The second dialogue in the Mass is the priest greeting, the Lord be with you, and the people's response, and, and with, with your and spirit. With spirit yep. uh, I suppose the, maybe the third dialogue could possibly be the penitential act, um, especially if you use, a, a, what's, what's the second one? Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we, we have sinned, sinned against, against you. you. Right, so we're we're talking back and forth, and finally, the, the the opening prayer will be the last dialogue of the introductory rites. Let us pray. The priest makes the prayer, uh, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. So anything that uh, the priest or the ministers can say and the people can respond to is called a dialogue, and this takes the the, the very first top priority of things to be sung uh, to be sung. Right, so right away, the Mass is not a thing the people in the pews watch. It's a thing that the people, as the members of the mystical body, do together with the head. And the head says, hey, here I am. Be part of this. I'm going to take you into the altar of God and give you a transformation. And those are the things that are most important binding headed members. So they're the things meant to be. And this is that active participation. That's why this is so important is you're talking, Chris, about this Trinitarian dialogue. So that's where this music comes from. And we talked about that on our episode about music. But right now we're talking about the practicality of how this is implemented in the liturgy. And the church gives us instructions, I assume, on you, you say dialogue is the first and most important thing. But then the church talks so much about music because it's such... An, an integral part of the liturgy. And in fact, that's exactly the word used in the general instruction, the integral part well, of the liturgy. Well, I can't say that I read the document word for word, so that was I know just you lost. Have a, <laughs> sitting on your nightstand at home at yeah. Sacrament. We all, we all know I don't do that. Integral means it's not this thing added to the top. Oh, well, some days we sing because we're fussy and we have music 
and we can afford to pay musicians. No, it's in the nature of dialogue of love to be sung. Necessary is the other word. It's a necessary and integral part. It's not, you know, pretty sprinkles that you can either put on top or not as you want. No, no, necessary and integral from its very ontology. Right. If you, you know, write a, think of every pop song that's about love and you just recited it. How, you know, how boring. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With love like that, you know, you should be glad. It's not the same thing as singing a song. Or happy birthday. I don't think we paid for those lyrics, yeah, happy by the birthday. way. So, well, Jesse, happy, happy birthday. To you. Hey. Happy birthday to you. National birthday, anthem. Dear Jesse. Right, if you, Jesse's girl. Yeah. Oh, my God. I wish I had. Have you met his wife? I wish I had Jesse's oh girl. Awesome. Can we steer this conversation <laughs> back on course, Shout please? Out, Kim. Right. So singing isn't just a magical thing that you do because you feel like it. It's, it is the sacramentalization of word into love song. It's word into love is sung. That's the distinction. And this is very important, and this is why Pius X, back in 1903 in Traule Solicitudini, God bless you, uh, wanted the people to participate in these dialogues, and not just to be silent spectators or to sing uh, other songs uh, at the Mass. He wanted to, I think this is actually a, a quote of his. If it isn't, it's attributed to him that there's a difference between singing at Mass and singing the Mass. When you sing the Mass, you're really participating in this integral, necessary, true dialogue between head and members, between bride and bridegroom. But in, in, the, in the decades leading up to the Council, as I'm led to understand, there was basically two types of Mass that could be offered. There was uh, the recited Mass, and uh, apparently according to the legislation, if it was a recited Mass, you couldn't sing anything. And oh, there it was, was like an all-or-nothing. It was an all-or-nothing, wow, right? Okay. So on the one hand, you had the recited Mass, on the other hand, you had the sung mass, and if it were a sung mass, you had to sing everything. You couldn't recite anything. So it was either one or the other, but there was no... And I'll give you one guess as to which mass people went to yes. most. Well, they recited. did. So, so very often... The guy they, with the shorter homily, that's the one we go to. Yeah. So it, it was often the uh, recited mass, but I think there was, a, there was a provision or a permission that, well, if it was a recited mass, people could at least sing, say, vernacular hymns you know, during certain parts of the Mass. They weren't singing the Mass, though. They were singing hymns that were not the Mass texts and maybe not very closely related to the liturgical action while the recited Mass was being carried out. The monologues, as Dennis said. Yeah, it was, it was weak on the dialogical part. Mm -hmm. I mean, the server might take the, the place of the assembly in making the responses. You know, if Kevin were here, he could verify this. Yeah, he we'll remembers all this preconciliar. I think he's looking in said. the window over there. Oh, creepy. Yeah. Kevin. Anyway. So what, uh, one of the things that the council wanted to do so that the people could more actively participate in the singing of the liturgy, which isn't uh, an extra, it's not uh, you know, just frosting on the cake, it's really at the heart of the liturgical action, was to uh, allow for kind of a middle ground between these two, in a sense, extremes, between the recited mass where everything's recited and the sung mass where everything is sung. So various degrees of singing that could take place in the mass. Okay? And so this is um, what the, the one particular document, we're going to celebrate its 50th anniversary uh, this year in March, I think, uh, called Musicam Sacrum. Musicam Sacrum. What does that mean? It means Musicam Sacrum. Well, what is... <laughs> Translation. Sacred music. Sacred music, okay. But it's an instruction on music in the liturgy that came out right after Vatican II. So you have... Uh, during Vatican II. Oh, during right? Vatican II. No, it, no you're, 67, I'm sorry, you're right. 67. 67. After Vatican II. So oh, you guys are nerds anyway. So it was the 
the church's instruction on how to implement the Second Vatican Council. So this is not some local bishop uh, deciding what's going to happen in his diocese. It's not just a bunch of bishops in a, you know, in a national grouping deciding. This is the universal teaching authority of the church from what was then called the Congregation for Rights, now the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments, saying this is how you understand Vatican II. Absolutely. It's the definitive interpretation from the Holy See uh, about uh, applying the principles of Sacrosanctum Concilium in a more practical way. That's what I was, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, we, you have this uh, trial lesser legitude in you. That's 1903. God, God bless, bless you. you. Yep. And the Cubs won the World Series like a, five years after that and then barely just won it again. Um, I, that was going to be my question. Like, this is, So does Musicum Sacrum back up what Trilocitudini was saying? Uh, I don't that know document it, came out so long ago, it's well, hard to say. No, that. no. I think, um, not necessarily that it backs up, but it... Uh, kind of brings to a practical application okay. what Trale Silici Tuni did. But here's the, some, here's the some second really, footnote. The second yeah. footnote in Sacrosanta Concilium is, I mean, in um, Musicum Sacrum is to Trale Silici yeah. Tuni. Yeah, here's, here's some liturgy nerd stuff. All right, right let's do is, it. So Trale Silici Tuni was November 22nd, the feast day of St. Cecilia in 1903. Mm-hmm. Sacrosanctum Concilium was approved by the, by the bishops, the fathers of the council, on November 22nd, 1963, 60 years to the day uh, of Trilicilicitudine. And Sacrosanctum Concilium will say that active participation of the people is the aim to be considered before all others. This is right out of Trilicilicitudine. So the fathers of the council are are entirely aware of Pius X, his principles, his musical uh, application, and uh, the rest. And so then in 67, when Musicum Sacrum comes around, sure, it's, it's uh, as you know, Dennis brings out in the footnotes, uh, it, it, it too has a very clear eye on Pius X and Trale Solicitudini, uh, his principles that are finally becoming, um, uh, I don't know, canonized in, in, in a certain way in the council, and now they're being practically applied in Musicum Sacrum. And that, I think, is a good way to look at it. I mean, the Constitution is giving principles and norms what Sacrosanct, excuse me, what Musicum Sacrum is doing is saying, okay, let's apply those principles in very concrete uh, ways in the celebration of the Mass. Still with the high theology, you know, right early on it says it, when um, the liturgy is sung you know, by the priest and the people, it does a couple of things. It, it reinforces the hierarchical and the community nature of the liturgy. So you have a head talking to members and the members replying to the head. So there's the hierarchy. But it's also allowing the people who previously were individuals sort of doing their own individual private devotion to realize they're doing corporate worship. It says a couple of other things. The minds are raised to heavenly things. The whole celebration more clearly prefigures that of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's very important because you can say, well, practical norms. The practical norms are to make these sacramental realities more obvious. So what is heaven like? Everybody's singing in perfect unity the praise of God. What are we supposed to do on earth? Sacramentalize that reality by everybody singing the perfect praise of God. And so singing is not, as Chris said, the frosting, but it's in the nature of the liturgy itself. Yeah, and what's what's heaven? I mean, what's the heavenly Jerusalem like? Is it uh, you know Luciano Pavarotti just singing all by himself, a type of uh, uh, solo piece, communal song, right? It's communal, and it's what it's it's dialogical. Dialogue, you know, a son and spirit singing to the Father. Um, th- those in heaven are called in the Catechism recapitulated, uh, literally under the headship of Christ. And so there's a this uh, this song goes on between. Uh, uh, head and members uh, in heaven, just as it's well. And if this what's hap- if this is what happens in heaven, and what happens on earth is an anticipation and sacramentalization of what happens in heaven, 
you know, how ought we to sing then in the liturgy? Yeah, it's, it's trying to get as close as possible as we can to the heavenly liturgy. And this is precisely what you see in the current norms on singing in the church today. Which so, are? Which, well, for example, let's take, um, uh, let's start with the general instruction of the Roman Missal, right? Okay. Uh, in number, this is in number 40. So there's a couple of paragraphs that talk about the importance of singing. But it says this, in choosing the parts actually to be sung, preference is to be given to those that are of greater importance. Hmm, I wonder what so, those are. Yeah, what? It continues, that is, especially to those which are to be sung by the priest or the deacon or a reader with the people replying. In other words, dialogues. Anything that the assembly can respond to in song is in the very greatest uh, importance of the parts to be sung. It continues, or by the priest and the people together. This is your communal singing. Okay. So we have here some categories of most important parts to be sung. Now, there's a footnote to this paragraph to Musicam Sacrum. Oh, I was going to say Charles said that you All right. Okay. I'm trying to follow along. So uh, Musicam Sacrum, then, uh, the church's definitive interpretation and application of Sacrosanctum Concilium says in this footnote, uh, it's citing, it's bringing us to number 29. 20, oh, uh, yeah, 29. And there's a couple, I mean, it's, there's a couple of paragraphs, 29 and uh, 16, 16 and 7. What, what does it say in Musicam Sacrum? Well, it, it speaks about first degree, second degree, and third degree, not Burns, but the... Uh, or black belts. Or black belts. This, we're talking, or Knights of Columbus, right? Oh, man, yeah. I don't have another one. Except there's no fourth degree. <laughs> but actually, first degree means the things you're, are most important to do. Um, and, you know, when's the last time you heard a lector say, a reading from the letter to the Hebrews? Um, at the liturgical oh, institute. Yeah, the liturgy, yeah. Yeah. Just For the word of the Lord. You almost Thanks never hear that. Thanks be to God. Right. Um, so those things belong in the first degree. So the greeting of the priest with the reply of the people, uh, the acclamations that we were just talking about, um, the prayer over the offerings or certain things that the priest uh, sings, the final doxology, the canon, that would be the through him, with him, in him. And uh, the Lord's Prayer. So these are all things in the first degree. Also, the prayer after communion meant to be sung, and uh, the formulas of dismissal. So the Mass is ending with peace, that kind of stuff. That you do often hear that sung pretty uh, frequently. And then second degree are things that you might think would be first degree, like the Lord have mercy, the Creed, the Gloria, the Agnus Dei. You would you would assume those are the important things. Those are the things everybody sings all the mm -hmm. time. But they're in the second degree um, because they're not dialogical. They're more uh, everybody singing it together. And then third degree are a bunch of other, other things. The Alleluia before the gospel is in the third degree, strangely. You'd think that would be very important. Uh, the song at the offertory, the entrance, antiphon, the communion antiphon, those are all things in the, in the third degree. Yeah, we can try to summarize this. Uh, I have this litany of ten things. Basically, we can break it down into threes. The first degree, according to Musicam Sacram, is what we would call the order of the Mass, where the priest and the people are uh, saying parts of the Mass either in dialogue or together. The second degree would basically be the, um, uh, the ordinary of the Mass, Agnus Dei, the Holy Holy. I was the, just going to ask, the, the I hear that, the, the ordinary of the Mass, that just means... That's that's happening during the Eucharistic prayer. Is that what? No, that no, means? no, not. Uh, it means like um, the the parts, uh, at least uh, popularly, would be considered the ordinary of Mass would be the Kyrie, the Gloria, perhaps the Creed, uh, the memorial acclamation, the uh, the Holy, Holy, the okay. Lamb of Got God. It. Okay, and then the third degree are basically the hymns. Okay, 
But notice the priority of first, second, and third degree. And you know what Dennis is suggesting, you know, at least at the beginning, is we, we have this entirely turned. I was just going to say that. I mean, I think that's the elephant in the room, right? That's you know, I started hearing about this at the Liturgical Institute and going to Mass here, and and we try to adhere to to these documents and what they say, um, but. I never have seen this done in, in a parish, at least really well. Why is that? If this is so important, and if it's in, in I always want to see integral, but that's how they say it in written, but if it's integral to the liturgy, how could we get this quote-unquote wrong? Because nobody ever does the liturgy right, whether it's from 1903 to today. But you know, one proposal, and you know, it's hard to quantify this, is that we're basically doing the preconciliar model. So the preconciliar model was we recite everything and we give the people some hymns to sing so they're not bored when they can't understand the Latin and don't have a missile. Now we basically do the same stuff, except it's in English. <laughs> we give them a hymn to sing and then we don't sing anything else. And then we give them another hymn to sing during the boring parts for people. And then that's how it is. This is true. But I mean, if you were to go back and read, you know, Trale Solicitudine, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and Musicam Sacrum, that is not the mind of the church. What you're describing, that is not the mind of the church. And people would say, oh, well, that's the post-Vatican II thing. People get to sing hymns. In fact, it's not the post-Vatican II precisely <laughs> because they want people in their baptismal dignity to recognize that they are members of the body of Christ and are doing what Christ does. They're singing to their head, hearing the head sing back to them so that together my sacrifice and yours can be offered to the father and you can be offered as a victim and get yourself back glorified see what these what these degrees do too it's not just theologically sound that they be lined up this way it's very practical too right so uh in the first degree are the dialogues right so amen and with your spirit uh things like this is simple right so when the priest every mass if the priests began in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit Amen. That is the simplest thing in the world to sing. The words don't change. The music doesn't change. And with your spirit, how often do we sing and with your spirit and the in the tone, mass? And the tones that the priest uses, am I, am I wrong in saying that those are the same tones that we respond with? Is that correct? Right. Well, there's two tones in the missal. There's a solemn tone and a simple tone, but they're both easy. The point is, is that in the first degree are the simplest things to sing. Mm -hmm. It is so practical. It's not only theologically sound, like Dennis is saying, this is the most practical way, whether you are in uh, the cathedral or you in a, are in a rural parish with 100 families or you are at a small chapel with uh, a priest and three people. Everybody has, is able to do this. Now, those in the second degree, uh, the words never change, right? For the holy, holy or the glory or something like that. You can have different settings, but the words are always the same. You don't have to relearn a new set of texts. Now, in the third degree, the antiphons or hymns, right, those change all the time. So not only do the words change, but the music change. So they're even more complex. So what the church is doing is not just uh, based on uh, the, the high theology. It's based on a very pa uh, practical and pastoral application to get the people to become more intimately involved with the essence of the liturgy itself and not doing external extra things, not just singing at Mass, but actually singing the Mass. And the third degree doesn't mean it's unimportant. These are all important because they're mentioned. When you read what the documents say about the entrance antiphon, for instance, it's not just because it's in the Missal. It says you should sing these because they introduce the theme or the tone of the Mass. So the antiphon 
Ventures Antiphon for that day will be about the reading or about the saint or whatever it happens to be. And so it starts to set your mind sort of like the intellectual cup of coffee before you go into mass. <laughs> I like that metaphor. It's like turning on the, on the engine and you're not warmed up yet, but at least you've turned the key. And then you've heard this phrase that then will come back later in the readings or maybe in the preaching. And so it's part of the whole process of entering into the mystery of the liturgy. In, uh I remember this from a past Treasures of the Triduum that the Institute... Oh, what uh, is that, Chris? Treasures of the Triduum is an annual conference that happens at the beginning of Lent at the Liturgical Institute. Is there one of those coming up? There is. It's Friday, March 3rd. I think we're going to talk about the spirituality of uh, the Triduum. Uh, But in one of these, I remember the entrance antiphon for Holy Thursday, right? So what kicks off the Triduum. So this would be the first words out of the church's mouth are something like, I could have lifted this up beforehand. Uh, we should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has our life, death, and resurrection, by whom we are saved and forgiven. So imagine, the Triduum is this three-day united set of liturgies that celebrates uh, the cross, it's, uh, it, it, it remembers the death of Christ, but also his resurrection. This is what the three days do. And all of that is contained in the entrance antiphon for Holy Thursday, right? So the church is telling us, okay, this is what's gonna happen over the next three days. But of course, very often, for a variety of reasons, we don't do that, and so we miss out on that. But, you know, this, um, I just wanna say that, you know, these are not, we're not, uh, not that these are unimportant because they're 50 years ago. These Mm -hmm. things still have legs today, as we saw in the general instruction of the Roman Missal. It's relying on musicum sacrum. And even um, our own, at least in the United States, uh, set of musical uh, norms and guidelines, a document called Sing to the Lord. I think this is maybe 2007 somewhere in there. Oh, wow, that's really recent. It is, it is. This is what uh, it has to say. Uh, so this is, this is current, the most current set of guidelines from the USCCB. It says, at daily mass, so imagine this, you're at daily mass. At daily mass, these musical priorities should be followed as much as possible in this order. Number one, Dialogues and acclamations. Number two, litanies, which they mean Kyrie and Anuste, things of a litanic character. The third is the responsorial psalm, perhaps in a simple chanted setting. And finally, a hymn, or even two on more important days. Even when musical accompaniment is not possible, every attempt should be made to sing the acclamations and the dialogues. Right? So this is, musicum sacrum is not a dead letter. It is, uh, uh, its principles and norms and, ac- and applications exist in the most recent uh, guidelines from the church. I was out at Mass in Kansas. My good friend, Father Nick uh, Blaha, came in to celebrate Mass, and he looked at the, he had a little, you know, Magnificat, looked at the line of the Andrew Zanifon and just sang it on a tone by himself on the way in from the sacristy to the altar. Da, 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 and everybody sang it back, and it was that easy. There was no organ, there was no paid musician he was able to do it, and he did it. And so the musician right was working there. for free. There was no musician. <laughs> he was. He was. It. And people, say, oh, this is so impossible. How could we ever have a chanted antiphon? No, it was that easy. If you can sing a line of four notes, you can sing the entrance antiphon even at a daily mass, completely yeah. unaccompanied. Yeah, and that just speaks to the practicality of the church's wisdom in in these guidelines. Again, my own parish is uh, ninety families in rural Wisconsin. And we do very many of these things, especially during the privileged seasons, you know, where the, the priest sings the orations. Do you know, in, in actually, in Sing to the Lord, it says that the priest can say 
the whole part until he gets to the final doxology, which he can sing. So he can recite, let us pray, oh God, you call us together to worship you, uh, help us to uh, meet you one day in heaven, through Christ our Lord, amen. That, yeah, it's so, it's yeah. so simple. Um, but this is how important the church thinks that these dialogues are, that the priest can say everything but just sing the conclusion, which is the same every Mass. So absolutely, to sing the liturgy like this is possible everywhere. So I, I got to say, I never thought of those parts of the Mass as dialogue. And so when you read this document, you guys are explaining do the, the Trinitarian dialogue, which you guys talked about in our music uh, podcast, that helped me understand that that's a dialogue, which I didn't even understand in the first place. And then you talk about music is elevated prayer. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that, you know, we're engaging in this dialogue together. We are actively participating in the liturgy and that that should be elevated prayer. Right. Sung so, mass is the norm. Sung mass is the norm. Mm -hmm. Recited mass is less than the norm. It's a deficient kind of minimalism, which is allowed if you have to. But we think of it the other way. Recited is the norm and singing is the fussy uh, moving up. Remember levels. Monsignor Wadsworth, who's the uh, works uh, with ISIL. Uh, he said uh, once at a, at a talk here, the what, what's ISIL? Uh, <laughs> International <laughs> Commission on English in the Liturgy. He uh, said right? the Mass is a sung prayer, which sometimes is recited. Yeah, but the Mass is so, so. normatively a sung prayer. Mm -hmm. My my question, I guess, lastly, um, before we wrap things up, is when I first heard these, I kind of got upset that I was like, I felt like I was gypped out of the liturgy and gypped out of some things that, you know, what they weren't Just happening. as an aside, musicum sacrum says the people are cheated. That's the word it uses. Or maybe this was a clarification about substituting songs other than antiphons. It uses the word cheated. Mm -hmm. Well, so I guess... Gypped, I guess, would be music, because <laughs> Musicum Sacrum knows exactly how I feel. Uh, what, what practically could somebody do when they hear this uh, podcast and, or they read these uh, documents on the degrees of things that should be sung? What can you do practically? Because I think if the priest is not doing these, then the people cannot engage in the dialogue most of the time. So how do, how do we do that? Well, again, it very much depends on the priest, right? If, if the priest uh, won't sing his parts, I can't sing mine. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think it would be, you know, to ask the priest um, if he would consider singing some of, some of these parts. Again, this is just what I did in my own parish. Uh, I asked my pastor if during um, the season of Christmas, uh, actually Advent and Christmas, it was just concluded, if he would sing the orations. So this would be the opening prayer, the prayer of the gifts, and the prayer of communion. This is something we don't usually do, but we look for ways to uh, signify the importance of the season. This was one of the ways. I said, Father, would you at least sing for Advent and Christmas these three prayers? And he did. And the people sang back. So uh, enter into a dialogue with uh, the pastor before uh, <laughs> and mass. sing that dialogue. Yeah, these are very simple things. Father, to do. will you please sing the mass? <laughs> and I, th I think a music director would be open to this too. A music director mm -hmm. wants people to sing, and this is uh, almost <laughs> the easiest way possible to get more singing into the mm -hmm. mass. And I think probably there are some priests out there who are a little self-conscious about their ability to sing, but I think chanting 
um, it's a little easier to do than actually, you know, reading the notes. And, and you, like you said, I mean, these things are very simple. Nobody says you have to be a, the perfect singer or chanter. Yeah, sing to the Lord will even say, even for the priest with limited musical ability, there's no reason why he can't sing mm-hmm. the conclusion to the prayer on a single note. Through Christ our Lord, it's easy as that. All right. Well, I think it is time for us to uh, check out a liturgy question from one of our uh, listeners. All right. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Anonymous, and Anonymous says, I am a cantor in my parish, and I am wondering if there are any gestures that the church says I should be doing to indicate that the congregation should sing. What should I do? What should you do or not do or when to do or what to do? Or why to do. Well, even yeah. before we get to specific rules or suggestions, I think You're talking about ontology. I am, yeah, of course. <laughs> the, if you know what a thing is, then you know what to do. So the question is, what does a cantor do or what does a psalmist do? And their job is to sacramentalize the voice of Christ or the voice of the angels and saints in heaven. How do we hear and know and understand these words that God wants us to know? Let me insert one thing there. Did you know that, at least according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, there is a a ministry mentioned by the name of psalmist, and that's all that person does is the psalm. So, Yeah, so it's not just a cantor. Ideally, there's someone set apart just to do the psalm. Right, so this kind of signifies an important ontology. Right, a psalm is different from a hymn, for instance, and so it has a certain level of importance. But primarily, any singer in the liturgy is supposed to be a revealer of the glory of the poetic representation of words that God wants us to know. And if they turn it into their own show with a lot of movement or a lot of self-referential uh, styled singing, Broadway-style singing, or their they, clothes, or their bearing, anything. Right. They become more. Um, they become dominant over the words. The job of any singer is always to be subordinate or to be lost in the words, so that the people can uh, sing them together with the cantor or psalmist. Yeah. In the document, uh, sing to the Lord. This these are got norms and got guidelines, I guess, from the USCCB. It says something very much along those lines. So it's putting that uh, that thinking into uh, practical norms. It says, uh, let's see. And this is at number. I guess 38, it says, as the congregation finds its voice and sings with increasing confidence, the cantor's voice should correspondingly recede. So the cantor is only necessary, first of all, 
to help evoke from the congregation and to support its own singing. So, and so this is what the cantor or psalmist would do with his or her voice. It continues, though, at times it may be appropriate to use a modest gesture that invites participation and clearly indicates when the congregation is to begin, but gestures should be used sparingly and only when genuinely needed. So this is not two arms up over the head like you see in so many pictures in uh, liturgy magazines and so on. Wow, yeah, and, this and, is and, kind of new to me. I never knew this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and one wonders how genuinely... I mean, this is what a can't. This is what our cantor should ask herself or himself: is Is it a genuine need that I indicate to the assembly when to come in on the psalm response? Uh, I th- I'm a cantor, uh, an elector, and you are too, uh, Dennis. Uh, may, my opinion is is that you know maybe 50 years ago when we were transitioning away from a gradual into a psalm and maybe the mechanics of how a psalm response is, was supposed to work, uh, this would have been necessary. But today, I think everybody in that church knows how the psalm uh, response or a psalm works. Right. I say a response, and they know that they uh, repeat it. In fact, most of the people in my church are even, uh, we talked about this before, are reading out of the, the missalette anyway. There's, nobody is confused in my church about what to do after I sing the response. So at least in my situation, maybe this isn't the case in most, it's just it's, there's, no, there's no need at all right. for the cantor to do and Some this. of the choirs I sang with in college and graduate school We'd have a director who would lead everything during the rehearsals, and then when we'd perform, the director didn't direct because we knew the stuff. We were tuned into each other's ears. We'd listen to the other one, and we just sang as a body without a lot of arm waving. I think that's the ideal for liturgical singing as well. If it's necessary, you have it. If it's not, then it's not part of the job of the cantor to wave his or her arms around. All right, I'm going to file this under uh, you can, but you shouldn't, which I feel like... There's a, a lot of things a in there. Yeah, it's a really big file. So um, that's that's really interesting. So if you have a, a parish that it's mostly tourists, you know that might be something. Uh, the congregation is always changing, and you don't have the same constant understanding of what mass parts they do. That might be an instance where you do it that. It might be, but well, I think I'm the song works to, pretty yeah. much uh, the same. Yeah, in each, but I think each that place. you know what you guys say is very very valid and makes a lot of sense. So, uh, if you have a question for the liturgy guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.